Hey, Pete the Planner here. Um, listen, I've been working on something for 15 years, and I'm so excited to introduce it to you. It is called Hey Money, and the whole point of it is this. You should not have to pay thousands of dollars a year to talk to a financial expert about your financial life and to get answers to the questions that you so badly need. And that is why we created Hey Money for about 20 bucks a month. We can help you with all aspects of your financial life, short of investment decisions. That's right. I'm just telling you how it is. Don't call us and say, hey, should I invest in this or that? That's not what we do. And let's be honest, those aren't the questions that keep you up at night. We can help you figure out how to get out of debt, to pay for college, how to uh, put together a budget, how to do all sorts of things. If you like this show, which of course you do, that's why you're listening, then get Hey Money. And I've got a special offer code, 10% off radio. Use the offer code radio for 10% off for podcasts and radio listeners only. Go to callheymoney.com. That's callheymoney.com, offer code radio. Good day. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This week on the Pete the Planner show, we answer your money questions. We tried to stream to Facebook Live today, just didn't work. Not worth the aggravation. Damien Dunn joins me as always. Hello, Dame. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm happy. It's Friday. How are your chickens? How are your mentals? They are both fantastic. Dame, this show is a financial show in which we answer people's financial questions. They can email us, askpete at petetheplanner.com, askpete at petetheplanner.com. And here's, here's the new process of the show. Oz, our teammate Oz, grabs the questions, puts them in Slack, and then we answer them. And that's the way we roll now. But Dame, I think we're going to start the show talking about the latest proposal for direct assistance to the American people. You and I were reviewing it this afternoon. And uh, boy, we are currently pumping, uh, we've pumped $3 trillion or so into direct support to the American people in the form of stimulus payments, PPP for small businesses, as well as enhanced unemployment benefits. And so far, so good. And by so far, so good, Dame, I mean, those programs are kind of working. There, there's some bumps, there's some warts, but but it's going okay, right? For the most part, I think it's going okay. I mean, obviously, there are going to be people who are upset at some of the processes because maybe they've been left out uh, because of qualifications or things aren't happening as fast as they want. But we're talking about massive programs here and trying to get as much help as possible to uh, as many people as possible. And it's not going to be an easy process. So all things considered, it's going okay. And it certainly is a race against the clock because July looks to be a really scary time for a couple of reasons. We even talked about it last week that the two main reasons are that's theoretically when the PPP funds who people have already received those eight weeks of payroll support run out at the end of that period. And then you and I already know someone who said they have a friend who was told she would be laid off as soon as those eight weeks are up. Right. And I think you're going to see that. You know what I mean? That's mind blowing, isn't it? I mean, the, the things are just playing out this way. They're going to hang on as long as they can, which I mean, I, I guess that's great, but Hey, plan on being laid off. Cause well, that's all we got. That's just, just odd. Yeah, I can't, you know, I, everyone's got to make, as, a, as leaders of organizations, everyone's got to make their own decisions and you try to extend them that level of grace and say, well, they know what's best for them. But at the same time, 
I can't imagine the circumstances that you say, hey, we're going to need this money so we can then pay you. Maybe they're just saying, look, since you make a high level of pay, we're doing this before you go on unemployment. Maybe it is to help them. I, I, I don't know. Could be. Uh, and again, just as you said, I'm not here to point fingers. Everybody knows their business better than than I do. But if um, if there are other considerations that need to be, you know, taken under consideration, that was great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, by all means, do it and run your business the way you want to and help your people. Please put your people first if you can and make sure that you're uh, giving them the, the best alternatives possible with the situation we find ourselves in. The other thing that has us up against the clock is the enhanced unemployment benefits are slated to run out in July, which could leave a lot of people in a lurch, given that we're at 14.7% unemployment. But Dame, even as you said in a text conversation earlier today with me, that number doesn't seem completely accurate. Some people have got it closer to 20% because of um, well, various reasons. But anyway. Damn, I, th- I think July is going to be ugly. And that is why the bills within the House of Representatives are starting to be uh, uh, rallied. And <laughs> they're starting to be created. And, and one came out late last week, Senator Harris and Senator Sanders, uh, who, of course, are not in the uh, House. They are senators, but they are proposing a pretty wild direct to American payment plan that you and I have have been beating this up this morning, not because we're critical of them as individuals, but because we cannot conceivably see this happen. For a couple reasons, too. Uh, one, the the financial commitment is enormous in this case, but also second, there's uh, unintended consequences that are are lumped into some of this as well, and I, I know people will say. Well, people won't look at it that way, but they will. You and I both know enough people outside of uh, our own little sphere that that we get reports all the time, maybe not all the time, but it's not uncommon to hear somebody anecdotally say, well, this unemployment has sure changed their perspective on when they want to come back to work. So uh, we'll see how that goes, but please give us the details of the bill. I will. One point on that, though. I, I agree there is some element of that. On a scale of one to ten, you know how how uh, of the one to ten, how many people are really, you know, expressing that sentiment, and how many people are really saying, well, "I don't want to go back to work. I'd rather have this this higher amount." I don't know, and, and I'm I don't know if it's a lot of people. It's definitely not a majority of people. Maybe five to ten percent. I don't know because I don't want that to be the takeaway of this segment. Is that people are too lazy or or don't want to go back to work or something like that? And I also know that's not what you're saying. However, yeah, yeah, this bill is $2,000 per adult per month in a household and $2,000 per child for anyone making $120,000 a year or less. Well, that means a family of four in America would receive $8,000 a month direct payments from the government retroactive to March, and they would last throughout the economic shutdown, which is how do you define the end to that? So you're talking about paying people out at a rate of $100,000 per household, whether they're unemployed or not. Dame, this makes no sense to me. 
Yeah, and it's not just 120 grand. That's for a single uh, person. It goes up to $200,000 for joint returns. So there's an even higher cap on that. I think it was 150 for head of household. So you've greatly increased the percentage of families that would receive this benefit in the country. Now, do some families need assistance going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to deny that. That's just the state that we find ourselves in. Eight grand a month for a family of four seems a little strong to me, though. Yeah. And I guess that the tough, it's such a broad stroke because there are people who need support but don't need eight grand. And they would tell you that. Maybe they're making 75 grand as a household and they only need four grand a month of support total. Or maybe there are people who are making $300,000 a year that have no income that could use the eight grand of support but don't qualify. Mm hmm. But then there's the people who do qualify who don't need it. What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to just stabilize or pump it back into the economy or lengthen the wealth gap? Like, I don't, if there is direct payments to the American people, if that's if that's the route we're going to go, there's no way it's $8,000 a month for a family for it. It's just, it's impossible. My first thought was something that you actually said was this will just increase the wealth gap in the country. To by leaps and bounds. It and and look, here's the thing: the problems we're facing are so difficult to solve, and you can't even say the word "solve." You have to say they're very difficult to address. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what solves any of this. Mm-hmm. But this ain't it, baby. This ain't it. This is not it. it and, and and I'm not. This isn't about socialism. I don't care about any of that right now. I'm just saying. The biggest issue is you're going to get a lot of people who are still employed, doing fine, that are stable, that have three months expenses, getting $8,000 a month. I'm more concerned about that than I am the people who will get addicted to this higher wage and not go back to work. I think the bigger issue is you're pumping money into households that simply don't need it. Totally. Anyway, I didn't expect to complain about this. And it's, it's just at the very beginning. It's Senator Sanders... Senator Harris, Kamala Harris, and Merkley, who's Jeff Merkley, $2,000 per adult and $2,000 per child. That's a lot. Yeah, I I think the intentions are probably good, but I I think there leaves a lot to be desired in execution here. I also think you get into, well, we ran out of time in this segment. So maybe we'll come back with that. And then we actually have questions from real people, not senators. So this is the Pete the Planner show, and uh, this is what we're doing today. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show, uh, Dame question came in from, I don't have a name on this one. I love this question, though, because I feel like I want to debate it for a while. Hi, I need help. I'm 39. My current employer does not match my 401k, but I have been contributing to it for the past 10 years. I was offered a job that pays $60,000 less than my current job, but they do offer a 10-year pension and I can still contribute to my 401k independently. Is this worth it? Dane, what I love about this question is there are not nearly enough details for you and I to make this judgment, yet that's the fun of it. Because we can just make stuff up. I thought you were going to tell me you love this question because it is just tailor-made for a spreadsheet. 
Oh, it really is. I But I would need more details that we'd have to make up. So I'm going to read it again because it's a short question so everyone can track here. 39 years old. Current employer does not match my 401k, but I have been contributing for the past 10 years. I was offered a job that pays 60 grand less than my current job, but they do offer a 10-year pension. Dame, do you interpret that to mean that a, a pension is uh, vested after 10 years? Is that what you're thinking? That's my guess. I, I went back and forth on that this morning as I was reading that question, and I think it's uh, a 10-year vesting on that. Uh, and I can still contribute to my 401k independently of this. Is it worth it? The first thing that jumps out to me is if you're making 60 grand less, how could he afford, or she, I don't know who sent this question in, how could the person afford to actually make 401k contributions? It's a great question. There's so many unknowns. This is one of them. What are you making now and, and what's your margin? What's your power percentage right now? I can't imagine this makes sense. As much of a fan as I am and you are about guaranteed streams of income and in retirement, this one leaves me scratching my head, especially with as few details as we've got. I'm not convinced this is a great opportunity for them. I think there's two big elements here that stick out to me. Number one, $60,000 less. So what, what that person is saying, okay, I'm willing to take $60,000 or less of income for a pension. Okay. Well, number one, the decrease in popularity of pensions over the last 40 years is breathtaking. And that will continue, if not get worse. And number two, it's not like they're giving you $60,000 a year of a pension. I wouldn't think. Oh, that'd be really strong. I don't think there's any way that happens. I mean, we've seen them. I mean, you we have clients that have incredibly healthy pensions, but and is it is it worth taking 60 grand less now? I can't no, because you're gonna you're going to invest your own money probably more efficiently and more aggressively, even though you have to take on more risk. That extra 60 grand can go to your bottom line and just build wealth. No? Yeah, I I think the I think the key to this is what are you spending right now? I I really think it comes back to if you can get away with making 60 grand less, one of the very first things you said, what's the rest of that, what's everything else look like? Are you saving that money right now? The 60 grand in in yeah. some way shape or form? Because if you are then no, this doesn't make any sense at all because you're exactly. you're putting away sixty grand. Uh, if you are consuming a good chunk of that sixty grand, I don't know how you're going to live with with sixty grand less, unless we're talking about some massive massive salary here, where you know if you go from five hundred to four forty, uh, you might be able to put things together. Uh, but if you're going from let's say one twenty to 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 sixty. That's a different ball game. Yeah, there's no way. You know what? I will say there was another news story that you and I uh, talked about this week where there's a bill right now that would increase how much you can contribute to a 401k this year to help stoke the economy. And it's a weird bill that I, I'm not sure will pass because number one, it only affects people who are currently maxing out their 401k at 20 or I mean, uh, roughly $20,000 a year. And so those people could put in even more. I mean, just a crazy cap on that. So it only benefit the top 5% of people. And number two, 
it would significantly decrease tax revenue, which is something the government needs right now. So that makes no sense. However, if that went through, this person should definitely stay at their current job because they could just contribute that extra $60,000 to their 401k. I would need uh, some really good convincing and a couple glasses of deliciousness to be convinced that that bill makes any sense whatsoever right now. You know, I I've I put that out there on Twitter in the last couple of days, and then of course you have people that disagree with you, which is fine. Like I don't I don't think I'm right. I just you know let's talk about it. here. Here's the points that came back to me of why this bill is a good idea. Hmm. <laughs> the people said this is what the people said that we need to get inflows into the market, the stock market to support the economy, which by the way, doesn't make any sense. No, uh, no, <laughs> the stock market's fine. The stock market is volatile right now, but it's got fed interjection. Like it's fine. It, it, it literally is fine. Number two, the other one said, well, anyone can do it. It's just a matter of budgeting. It's like, well, if people have no jobs and we're trying to help people, then would the people with no jobs be able to put more than 19,500 into a 401k that doesn't exist? Like that doesn't make any sense. Not at all. 0% of zero is still zero. This does go back to our earlier conversation about why this problem is so difficult. Because you try to help the people who need help the most, but it's just not that easy. You, You can't, it's like there's a guy emailed me this week that said, hey, my someone, my grandma died or something, and but she used to live with me, and I got her stimulus check sent to me, and I have it. What do I do with it? Mm-hmm. He's like, do you think anyone would know if I cash it? And I'm like, are you looking for me to be an accessory to fraud? Uh, that's actually a, a common Uh, not an uncommon occurrence right now. And there are a few different perspectives on what should happen with that, by the way, not surprisingly. You know, I know you said it earlier. People are upset at the government. People are upset about the situation. They're upset at their employers. I don't think committing fraud's the way to go though. You know, I mean, fraud is, is, is not generally the answer. No. Do you, people think people view it as fraud or do they feel like it's somehow they're owed that money because the people were in their lineage and what's it matter? Is it, do you think that's the, the move? I think some people would say that it's perfectly fine because it's not specified any other way in the letter of the law and that it, it may not be maybe what was intended, but there's nothing that prohibits it. So, uh, we're going to take it because the last tax return that was filed qualified and here it is and I'm taking it. I think this this next several months, just from an IRS standpoint, from a small business administration standpoint, from a uh, anyone involved with getting the CARES Act money out, the rules just constantly change. I mean, you you and I both know as we've been trying to dig through PPP for our own organization, which we've received and are deploying appropriately, it's really hard to do it right. And it's not to say that we're trying to do it wrong. We are doing it to the letter of the law. And because you have 56 days from the day you receive it, no matter when your last payroll date is, it's incredibly difficult to execute. And I'm not complaining, but I don't want this to be a complaint. I'm trying to say that two people, you and me, who have a pretty good grasp on on money and, and the way finances work, we're not struggling, but we're certainly 
experiencing challenges with doing this right. How is a mom and pop that is not concerned with math, who doesn't have an accountant, how are they going to do this right without getting burned? They probably won't, but don't worry because the rules will change next month and whatever they thought they understood today will probably be different then. Oh, it's, it's so wild. And I, please, if you're just join, joining us, I'm not complaining. It might sound like complaining. It's nuanced. It's more of, <laughs> this is really hard. And I, I get upset when people think there are easy answers. Coming up after the break, we'll see if we can find some. I'm... Back on the Pete the Planner Show, answering your money questions. This one came in. Pete, my husband died suddenly in 2003. And after I completed raising our children, I returned to college and started teaching school at 60 years old in 2016. Wow. I love that. Nice. I earn $48,000 a year as a school teacher. And all I have to my name is about $48,000 in savings. If I work a few more years, I may have close to $10,000 in the teacher's retirement system, but that's it. Is there any hope for me at all? Or will I have to just keep working until I die? I desperately do not like school teaching. Oh, that took a turn. Hmm. Didn't it feel like it took a turn? Quickly. But who hires someone that's almost 64 years old? In my 20s, I worked at an oil company for 10 years, and I received a notice from the Social Security Administration that I'd receive about $1,700 a month in Social Security benefits if I work until full retirement age due to my years working in the oil fields. I believe I qualify for my deceased husband's benefits, but have not tried to do that because my current salary is too much. I'm really stuck between a rock and a hard place and don't know what to do financially. Consider taking all of my savings and buying a cheap little cottage in West Virginia for about $40,000 and just live on Social Security and substitute teach if funds get low. Is this plausible? Is this a crazy thought? Thanks for reading. Kind regards. Wow. Yeah. Man, I'm sorry, person. This one's, uh, this hurts. So many situations like that. I well, think she's right now. I, I think it's clear that she's got some, uh, some moxie though. I, she went back to school to get a degree to be a teacher. She's a, she feels like a, uh, a survivor to me. She's just not happy with, uh, the situation that, that she finds herself in. She doesn't see a, a way out. And so she's, she's struggling with that a little bit. So, uh, I think there, I think she's going to be all right. Uh, if, if she can just see a path to make it happen, you, you kind of get the same feel. I think so too. Some interesting stuff in this, though, that are just, is distracting me from the right answer. <laughs> I should really get a cough button. Can you talk for a second so I can cough aggressively? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So there are a few things that are important to point out here. Uh, she's 64 years old. That means she's a couple years away still from full retirement age. So uh, if anything, I would encourage her to stick with it until she at least gets to full retirement age. Um she is also eligible for her husband's social security benefit. Now, whether or not uh, his is going to be higher or her benefit from the oil fields will be higher, uh, I don't know, but that's something I would certainly look into and I would encourage her to look into as well. I and, bet his is higher ex except for the, he wasn't actively taking it when he, he died in 2003. Correct. How's that work? 
He still uh, has it. Yeah, it's still on the, on the record, and uh, the benefits would be available for her. Um, technically, she could probably start taking them now uh, as a um, deceased or uh, the the widow. Um, but she could honestly, she should probably just go sit down with the Social Security Administration uh, office and figure out what her options are, and she may find out that she could be getting some benefits now and trying to pad that nest egg a little bit between now and the time she actually retires. So I a hundred percent agree that that's my first going to, advice. Yeah. A financial planner could be interesting here, but the social security administration is a no brainer. Yeah. They, they know the ins and outs and can figure out how to work the system appropriately for you and respectfully. The idea though, of going to buy just a cabin for 40 grand and living like Thoreau, um, that's interesting because while it sounds really extreme in its essence, it's, it's what everyone should do based on the resources they have. Yeah. You've got to plan out your, your future as well as you can, and as responsibly as you can. Now, I don't know if she said, you know, a little cottage in West Virginia, you know, kind of, kind of tongue in cheek, if that was just uh, a genuine option for her or if, if it was, uh, you know, something that she, she hopes things don't come to, I, I don't know, but if she's willing to you know go to that extent to make things work, that's another sign to me that, that she's going to figure out a way to, to pull this off. Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder if that 40, here's how I, I tend to view these situations. So she makes 48 grand a year, which has got her gross at $4,000 a month. I did that math for you. Uh, and we know that the social security benefits that she knows she has is $1,700 a month, but her husband's could be more. She's just trying to bridge that gap between $4,000 a month and $1,700 a month and seeing where she can make it work. I mean, that's, that's the essence of this problem that she has to solve, but there's so many other little elements and factors that it's pretty easy to get distracted from 4,000 to 1,700. That's, that's the move she's got to make. I would also encourage her that if, uh, she can, you know, if she makes that move and she is able to receive around $1,700 a month, I would continue working part-time as much as she can, uh, tolerate or, and her body will allow her to do to lessen the demand, uh, that, that will be placed on whatever benefit she can, she can, uh, qualify for to allow her to continue to save a little bit of money if possible. Let's take this in a slightly different direction here. Her husband passed away in 2013, which was 17 years ago, which would have made her 46 to 47 years old when that Mm, happened. Wow. Oh man. That's just, it's just tough. And and I don't want this to be, you know, should have had life insurance. That's not where we're going with this. However, for people who are listening that are closer to that age range that see how it's now to see how a situation like this plays out over time, yeah, this is what happens. This is what happens when when people half jokingly say, "Well, I don't plan to die anytime soon," because Dame, you've heard that a million times. And back when I was involved with life insurance to some degree, I used to hear it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is what it looks like. Th- and yeah, she survived. She she survived from twenty oh three two thousand and three to this time and now she got a degree she's got forty eight thousand dollars but then you you hear the rest of the story and it's it's an awful story Mm -hmm. and i i feel so bad for but i guess 
I don't want this to be the after school special lesson for everyone else, but this is the impact of not having proper life insurance. I think there was life insurance there. She was able to, yeah, I do. Uh, He passed away in 2003 and she went back to school in 2016 after she raised her kids. That's 13 years where she was interesting. I mean, there were social security benefits, uh, survivor benefits, almost certainly that, that she was collecting as well. However, there was probably a little bit of life insurance there too, I would guess to help supplement that. And, you know, the kids are raised and out of the house. The social security benefit starts uh, going away as the kids get older. And then she's left with trying to figure out how she's going to pull it off. Um, Let me say this, even though it's going to sound awful, then she didn't have the right amount of life insurance or he didn't have the right amount of life insurance because Mm -hmm. the challenge with life insurance isn't just to get the kids out of the house. It's to provide the retirement that is now not made possible because there's not a working person earning income saving for retirement. And again, we're not trying to beat her up or him up or anything like that. Just I'm hoping people can learn from this. It's this is what happens when you say, well, I got a quarter million dollars life insurance. I'll be fine. It's a quarter million dollars. This is a classic Dame, I bet he had a quarter million dollars. I mean, that's what, that's what happens at these things. Sure. And we don't hear anything about student loan debt uh, that she accumulated when she went back to school. So I don't know. This is a really interesting situation. I'm going to email her back. All right, Dame. Uh, Coming up after the break, biggest waste of money of the week. Who knows? As I was telling another friend here recently this week, it's sort of hard to be uh, snarky around uh, business and or things that are a waste of money because everyone's just doing their best. Uh, to make ends meet, companies are trying to come up with solutions. I'm really into that gadget. I think we've talked about on the show that makes it so you don't have to touch door handles and and ATM <laughs> keys and things yeah. like that. Like I'm totally ordering one of those. They're made of brass. They're perfect for your bald ginger germaphobe like me. I was going to order you one. Oh, don't don't waste your money, buddy. I'm going to order myself one. I'm so excited. All right, I'm just going to walk around with a brass stick and poke stuff with it. Hmm. Next time I see you, we could shake brass sticks Hmm. all right coming up after the break the biggest waste of money of the week and some more current events there's a lot happening we'll cover it i'm pete the planer that's damien dunn no relation this is the show this week's biggest waste of money of the week right here on the pete the planer show is the Super Veloc RS Black Edition Espresso Machine. Aggressive and masculine. Hey, I just called your name, Dame. Yeah. This new blacked-out espresso machine pays tribute to an iconic engine from the world of racing. With the legendary Porsche... Do you go with Porsche or Porsche? What do you uh, how say? Much, how pretentious do you want to be? I want. I, you're a car guy, so I'm, that's why I'm asking you. Porsche is correct. With the legendary Porsche 993 flat 6 engine in mind... Super Velasa, is it Velasa, do you think? Velasa created this espresso machine constructed from aerospace grade materials like surgical stainless steel, aluminum alloy, titanium, and carbon fiber. Even though it pumps out caffeinated fuel for you, <laughs> the, the RS Black looks like it could power a supercar and comes complete with anodized black cylinder heads, carbon fiber cam covers, and polished velocity stacks. Mm-hmm. Super Velasa is producing exactly 993 units of the RS Black Edition. So, Dame, this is an espresso machine. 
Coffee is very important to me. I start the morning with a brown liquid and I end the day with liquids of various colors. And coffee is a big part of this apocalypse for me. But you are not a coffee drinker. You're a Diet Coke guy. Mm-hmm. How's this been for you this time? Uh, Diet Coke supply has been flowing just fine. Easy, easy to acquire and taste the same. I'm always amazed when you show up at the office with like seven in the morning and you've got a giant McDonald's Diet Coke with the crunchy ice and whatnot. And uh, that's, I don't know. I just, I, it's not wrong. It's, it's what you're doing. It's different than what I do. I just think it's interesting. Okay. I, it's, uh, it's more of the, uh, we've talked about this before. I don't wait. The, I know. Yeah. So it's, it's just the way I have to get my caffeine. Well, this is why I prefer this method, because I would rather pay $11,120 for an espresso machine that looks like a Porsche and go from there. You just need a month and a half worth of the Sanders-Harris bill to to pull this off. It's funny you mention that. Democrat proposes forgiving student loans for frontline healthcare workers. Again, I don't particularly care um, what party this person who said this is affiliated with. But it's New York rep, Carolyn Maloney. She says that she wants to have a bill. She did introduce a bill called the Student Loan Forgiveness for Frontline Health Workers Act. It creates a program that forgives federal and private loans obtained to receive medical and professional training held by healthcare workers who have made a significant contribution to COVID-19 patient care, medical research, testing, and enhancing the capacity of the healthcare system to respond to this urgent crisis. So, Dame, what do you think? I think this opens up uh, a whole bunch of people saying, well, what about me? We're frontline as well. I mean, uh, yes, doctors, nurses, EMTs, super important right now. Police and fire are pretty darn important too. Uh, the, the folks working in the grocery stores to make sure that we get food and our ration of toilet paper every once in a while, very important too. Uh also, uh, the other little wrinkle in there, private loans will be forgiven? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Do Are we bad people for like being critical of some of these bills? Or I, I, they're just our opinions. I mean, you other people can have opinions. The hope is that we just don't yell at each other, right? You and I don't yell at each other. But people, even when you and I disagree, we tend to not yell at each other. But I feel like we agree on these things. Yeah, I, I think I would love to find a way that we could... Tell everyone thank you somehow. I, I, if there's you know, some awesome way that we can pull that off, I'm all for it. Uh, forgiving loans, well, that's kind of the hot topic right now or the hot solution for, for a lot of stuff. Um, so I don't know. I, I would need to be convinced that that's the, the uh, appropriate thing to do, but uh, I'm not opposed to, to thanking them somehow. I think, I told you on the show a couple of weeks ago, I think, my buddy good friend is a nurse who is on the front line. Did I tell you this story? Right. I don't know. He's come face to face with like 120 different cases, like front line. And he lives in a big city where there's a big, uh, beer manufacturer hmm. and his next door neighbor gets hazard pay for being a brewer of beer. And my friend who is on the front lines of COVID-19 does not get hazard pay. And that's, not great. Like, but it is what it is. Like, it, is that fair? I don't know. But it, it's sort of like, there's a lot of things that are frustrating right now financially. 
But I don't think wiping out the student loans of everyone on the front lines really solves anything because of the chaos of implementing that program. No, I agree. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the best way to do this is, uh, clearly. And there's so many things that are up in the air right now. I don't feel like adding more things to be confused about makes a lot of sense to, to me. Uh, and I'm wondering if you know, some of these things get proposed in hopes that they get uh, either, you know, just passed through because they, they, they seem like a good idea or uh, I, I don't know. It's just there's enough out there for me to worry about right now. <laughs> This, yeah, this, and then I don't want to do this one. Think about this. You got two nurses on the same floor doing the same job. One has paid off her student loans and the other guy has not. And so then this guy gets $60,000 of student loans forgiven and his nurse colleague doesn't have student loans. So she gets zero benefit from this. I don't know. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't know. But, but here's the thing. You and I are both very thankful for the frontline workers. You and I both know there is going to be a mental health crisis of PTSD for many of these frontline workers. And what is, what is you know, the ramifications of the period of time we're in right now, they're not going to end when the virus is over here. Not only economically, but health-wise. You're going to see massive mental health concerns for people in the medical profession and who are on the front lines. And that's straight from a lot of my friends in the medical field who are dealing with this right now. They already said that they're, they're starting to be a breakdown of morale. You've already seen emergency room doctors and commit suicide and these sorts of things around this, this plan. And I, I don't know, I'm just struggling to understand how haphazardly just throwing money at the student loan is, is is helpful and equitable to all of these people. Not you and me. It's not a matter of being fair to you and me. This is this is not about us. This is about two people going through the same battle. One gets a benefit, one doesn't, but they're doing the same thing. Maybe the solution is is that the government just uh, buys a whole bunch of cruise tickets and they send oh, every geez. every cruise every uh, medical person on a, a week long cruise at some point in the future to say thank you to help stimulate the economy too. Google employees are told to expect to work from home for the rest of 2020, uh, but some people are allowed to return to work. The news uh, this week came the same day that Facebook told its employees they could work from home for the rest of the year. The company had already, uh, Google that is, extended work from home until June 1st, but it sounds as though it could be more permanent. Dame, I want to go ahead and hear announce right here on the show with tens of people listening I'm going to extend work from home for you for the rest of your career. Really? Yes. Man, that's going to cut down on my transportation costs. Yeah. Well, you you already work from home. So I what people don't know is this is not as generous as an offer as it sounds. Dane, no. what's the top thing you learned? Putting you on the spot. It's Mother's Day when the show comes out. Best financial lesson you learned from your mother on this Mother's Day 2020. What is the best thing you learned about money your entire childhood or adulthood from your mom? You can make up for a lot of bad circumstances by continuing to grind and, and not giving up. Find something to, even if it's not what you want to do or what you were supposed to do, there's an opportunity out there to, to continue to bring money in and put food on the table. Yeah, mine, mine's... 
mine's a little different. Mine with my mom was never sort of the earner in our household, but always had jobs and things like that. But she brought a lot of joy to others through the work that she did. And that sometimes, you know, money is not the ultimate measure of success. It's not the ultimate measure of personal satisfaction with yourself. I, I think that is an invaluable lesson. So to all the moms out there, Dame, including to, to your wife, Cassie, and to Sarah, my wife, happy Mother's Day. Thanks for all you do. And to all the moms, thank you so much. I'm Pete the Planner. This is the show. Mm-hmm.